It will help you if you open your copy of God's Word or take the Pew Bible that's provided in the rack in front of you. For those doing the latter, turn to page 1346, Romans chapter 8. The text this morning begins at verse 18. Romans 8:18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. For in hope we have been saved. But hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one also hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we wait eagerly for it. Another grace that God gave me this morning is I opened my Bible. The sermon was all finished and I knew what I was going to say, and I read Second Peter, and Second Peter begins with words that go like this to make me know that this series of messages is relevant, really, really, really relevant. God's divine power has granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness, through the knowledge of him who calls us to his kingdom and glory, by which he has granted to us precious and very great promises that through these you might escape from the corruption that is in the world through passions and obtain a likeness to him or share in the divine nature. Now, that's a complicated sentence. In a nutshell, what it says is, if you know the God who called you to glory and kingdom, if you know the promises that are precious and very great, you will be made godly. You will be made holy. You will be rescued from lust. These are relevant messages, because what I'm talking about in these four weeks, five weeks, is the vision of those precious and very great promises beyond death, the glory and the kingdom into which we are being called. There are many struggles. During praying the vision this morning, one of the very first things we're going to do and I hope you'll stay, is put on the overhead here a multimedia presentation that's one of the most powerful ones that 
I think, has ever come out of this church about God's faithfulness and about God's mercy in our struggles to live out this godliness. And it will lead us right into prayer for our missionaries, especially this morning. So God was good to me this morning. He was good in that he said to me through Second Peter 1, 3 through 4, this message that you're going to preach this morning, though it has almost not a word of application in it, is so radically relevant that it could deliver people from lust, it could deliver them from likeness to the world, it could make them godly if the Holy Spirit were to be upon it and come and apply it to their lives. It makes a difference what you believe about what happens when you die. It really makes a difference. If you know what's going to happen to you when you die, and you know that it's good, you will be freed from fear. And you will be overflowing with hope. And you will have a strong expectation and anticipation And when you are freed from fear and when you have a strong anticipation and hope for the future, you live differently. You live very differently. You don't yield to the sinful pleasures of the moment when you have that kind of hope. You're not suckered in by advertising that says he who has most toys at the end wins. You're never suckered in by that kind of bumper sticker. You don't devote the best energies of your life to accumulating treasures on earth. You don't devote the best dreaming of your mind to relationships or accomplishments which perish. You don't fret over what this life hasn't given you. Marriage. Wealth. Health. Instead, if you know what's coming after death, if you believe it with all your heart, what I've been preaching in these days, you will stand in wonder and revel in the thought that the God who owns the universe and loves you is pursuing you with goodness and mercy, has destined you for glory, has worked for you and will work for you and bring you all the way through to an infinite happiness forever and ever and ever. You will begin to live to meet the needs of others because God is living to meet your needs and you don't have to. It's a glorious thing to know that God is working to meet your needs so that you don't have to be so self-preoccupied. You'll start to love your enemies and do good to those who hate you and bless those who curse you because you're not enslaved to the pleasures of revenge. You don't need it. You don't need those temporary, stupid, shallow, suicidal pleasures of having the last word. You don't need it. You or God will have the last word. He who laughs last will laugh forever. You don't need to take revenge into your hands. 
It's relevant. It is really, really relevant. Message number four focuses on the question, where are we going to wind up when it's all over? We've talked about what happens right when you die, namely going home to be with the Lord. Second Corinthians five, one, two, three. We've talked about the resurrection of the body, this body. Someday, out of the grave, transformed, made new, made whole, made beautiful, forever, and the soul and the body reunited with the Lord. We've talked last week about the judgment and how we will give an account for every idle word and how our lives will be the testimony to our faith and our faith will be the witness to our union with Christ and our union with Christ will be our victory at the judgment. And today, what's the end? What's the last thing? What happens at the very, very end? When all that's passed and we've entered into the final state, what is it? What will it be like? Now, before I look at Romans 8, which is the decisive text in my mind on this issue, I want to go back to Revelation 21, if you want to look there with me, and to 2 Peter 3, If you want to look there with me as well, I want to show you the answer of John, the answer of Peter, then the answer of Paul and create a problem or I don't think it's created. Recognize a problem, at least tell you about a problem I have when I read these texts and then let Paul, I think, provide the solution to the problem. So I'm going to start answering the question at Revelation 21, 1, which says, And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away. That's going to be the problem. And there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. Coming down, not going up, coming down. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle, the tent of God is among men and he shall dwell among them and they shall be his people and God himself shall be among them. And he shall wipe away every tear from their eyes and there shall no longer be any death There shall no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. So this is a beautiful picture to me. I hope it is to you of the final state on the new earth. The people of God gathered God himself in the midst of them. No death, no pain, no tears. And best of all, the tent of the Lord in the middle of us, not far away any longer, out of sight, but present, visible, manifest in Jesus, walking among us as friend and father and king and judge and Lord and maker with no shame and no guilt, no fear of any servile kind. Now, the question that that picture raises is in verse one. The first heaven and the first earth, that's where we live right now, passed away. Does that mean that the earth on which we now live is going to be obliterated? 
annihilated, out of existence, and a new creation started over called Earth, Earth number two. It's a question like the one two weeks ago when I posed the question about the body. Is the body just going to go out of existence and then God starts over by creating a new body for every soul? And I answered that question, no, we shall be raised, this body. And whenever you have a question that seems unanswerable, that the Bible says is true, it's like Jesus when the Sadducees, remember, said they didn't believe in the resurrection. And they thought they had him really stuck when they said, now, here's a woman who had seven husbands. Uh, And she's going to be raised and they're going to be raised. Right. You teach the resurrection. okay, guy whose wife will she be? And you remember what Jesus answered? You err. Number one, not knowing the scriptures. And number two, not knowing the power of God. Now, he said more, but that's the answer to everyone who has a question about how can he raise all these bodies? Or, as we'll see today, how can he make the earth? New. Before I give my answer to whether it's going to pass away and what that text means, let me make it a little harder by turning you to Second Peter, chapter three. He's back a few books: First, Second Peter, First, Second, Third John, Jude, Revelation. Second Peter, chapter three, starting at verse ten. Another picture of what's coming. The day of the Lord will come like a thief. In which the heavens will pass away, there it is again, with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way. Here comes this relevance issue again. What sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness looking for and hastening? The coming of the day of God, on account of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. But according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Now, according to Peter, our hope, our great hope for the final state is a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells, just like Revelation 21. And he, too, speaks of heavens passing away. Verse 10. And he goes further than that. And three times he says there's going to be destruction. Verse 10. The elements will be destroyed with intense heat. Verse 11. These things are to be destroyed. Verse 12. The heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. So I pose the question again, is this world, this earth where we're standing right now going to be annihilated, obliterated out of existence and start over? God going to start over and say, let there be another planet. Boom. My first response to that question is to say that the term passing away, the first heaven and the first earth 
will pass away need not mean go out of existence. It may mean something as simple as that this present condition of the earth and the heavens will so radically be altered that it will pass away. We might say the caterpillar passes away and the butterfly emerges. Or we might say the tadpole passes away and the frog emerges. That's not as attractive. There is continuity between the caterpillar and the butterfly. The second thing I would want to say about this word destroyed in Second Peter 3 is that it need not mean put out of existence. You might say thousands of farms were destroyed by the flood. And you don't mean they went out of existence. Or you might say the environs of Mount St. Helens was destroyed. But anybody who goes there now will know that it wasn't put out of existence. It's coming back. And so Peter may mean this in John. At the end of this age, at the very end, there may be such cataclysmic events so that there is a wiping out of all evil and a cleansing and a purifying fire, as it were, that sweeps over the whole earth and over the whole heavens and makes them brand new. It may mean that. It may mean that. Does it? And now I want to go with you to Romans 8, where I think the issue is settled. Romans 8 is a magnificent statement by the Apostle Paul of this creation and its destiny. There are four arguments in this text for why this world is not going to be annihilated. Why this earth on which we live will not be obliterated and put out of existence, but will in fact be renewed and restored after the cataclysmic events of judgments that Peter refers to in terms of heat and melting and fire. Number one, verses 19 and 20. The anxious longing of creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but because of him who subjected it, in hope. Now, verse 19 says that creation personified has longings. It, it has an eager expectation. Well, what's this earth eagerly expecting? To go out of existence? Doesn't seem to fit the language. This creation is eagerly waiting and expecting something. What? To be canceled out? Boom, you're gone. That doesn't seem to fit verse 19. And it doesn't fit verse 20 at all, because verse 20 says the condition of this world and why it is standing on tiptoe awaiting the revelation of the children of God is because when God subjected it to futility at the fall, Genesis 3, 2 and 3, when he subjected it to futility and bondage to decay, he did it with a view to hope. 
Oh, those two words at the end of verse 20 are so important. The devil is not in view here. The devil subjects nobody in hope. God subjects the earth in hope. It's the hope that is built in, as it were, to the corruption and the decay of this world. This world's groaning is the groaning of hope. So my argument number one is that that little phrase, in hope, and that tiptoe expectation of creation is not for annihilation or obliteration. Number two, argument number two, verse 21. The creation itself will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. It could not be said plainer in all the Bible. This is not annihilation. This is liberation. Restoration. I'll read it again. The creation will be set free from all that is enslaving it to corruption since God subjected it to futility. So what will pass away? Futility will pass away. Corruption will pass away. Floods and hurricanes and tornadoes and mosquitoes. Or they will be changed. I really believe that. In fact, I'll read you a text at the end that virtually proves mosquitoes will be changed. There will be fire. There will be judgment. It will be radical. It will be cataclysmic, but it will not be annihilating. It will not be obliterating. Number three, verse 22. We know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. Now, what that verse says is that all the, the groanings, the upheavals of creation, all the flooding of these last months, that is labor pain. That's what the text says. The upheavals of creation are not death throes. They are labor pains. What's the point of that? What's the point of of using the analogy of labor pains for the upheavals of the corruption of this fallen world? Because something new is coming out and the mother is not going to be killed. Now, if there shifts into your little brain right now, oh, I've heard this before. This is a new age. Mother Earth. It's not. It's not. It's light years away for a very simple reason. In the new age system, you have a, a pantheistic, pagan deification of Mother Earth to which you bow down. And you make her the source of all that is and you relativize any standards that would come upon her from without. That's new age. What you have here in the biblical vision is a sovereign, personal creator God who spoke the earth into being, holds earth in the palm of his hands, destines earth on his personally designed track 
and will do with her what he pleases and is using an analogy of motherhood to say that his purposes will be brought out of this earth. That's not New Age. That's Christianity. Vastly different. Jesus used the same imagery in Matthew 24, 7 and 8 when he said, Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. In various places there will be famines, earthquakes. These things are merely the beginning of the birth pangs. Same thing. Paul learned it from Jesus. What's happening in the world whenever there are massive floodings, whenever there's a great monsoon, whenever there's an explosion and an earthquake is birth pangs. It's birth pangs because something new is coming out of this earth. It is going to be a new heaven and a new earth. He's not going to kill the mother. Finally, number four, verse 23. Not only this, that is, not only does creation groan and have labor pains, not only this, but also we ourselves having the first fruits of the spirit. In other words, Christians, we ourselves groan within ourselves waiting eagerly for our adoption of sons, the redemption of our body. Now, the reason that is so important is to link up with the message two weeks ago. Your body is part of creation. The same as this pulpit and these flowers. Your body is of that kind of stuff. Therefore, the doctrine of the resurrection of the body and the doctrine of the renewal of this kind of stuff must go together. That's the point of this text. Not only does creation groan and wait and have labor pains to have something new brought forth that's not corrupt and in futility anymore, but we groan because we expect this thing to come out and live there on that planet. There's a unity to the resurrection of the body and the restoration of creation. So my conclusion now from Romans 8 is that our final habitation for all eternity will be on a new earth, which will be this earth made new. Matthew 19:28, Jesus says, the regeneration will come when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne. Regeneration is what he calls it. The world will be born again. Acts 3.21, Peter says, The times of restoration of all things will come, which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets. And what did the prophets say? Here comes the mosquito. Isaiah 11, verse 6. The wolf will dwell with the lamb, and the leopard will lie down with the kid, and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a little boy will lead them. Also the cow and the bear will graze. Their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. And the nursing child will play on the hole of the cobra 
And the weaned child will put his hand on the viper's den. They will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. When history is over, really over as we now know it, God will be the center. And the knowledge of the Lord will be like a sea. I wonder if this has something to do with Revelation 21.1 where it says the sea will be no more. Just suggest you to think about it. The knowledge of the glory of the Lord will be like a sea reflecting back to the Lord the knowledge of his glory. And his glory will shine so brightly as to make a moon out of the sun, which according to Revelation, we need no more for light. And so it'll just be a moon in all of its stunning brightness off in the sky of this new heavens and new earth. And just as the rejection of this knowledge brought a curse down upon this world and all of its natural expressions, so will the acceptance and the reflection back to God of this true knowledge result in the lifting of the curse so that even the way the animals eat will reflect the glory of the Lord and His centrality in our affections and in the lives of the animals will not be compromised by any violence anywhere, anymore at all. Let's pray. Almighty God and Heavenly Father, these are awesome expectations. And as we prepare our hearts to pray with the prayer teams about our hopes and our dreams and our needs, and as we get onto the bridge and do what we need to do in worship, in prayer, in going to Sunday school, I pray that you'd come and meet us in praying the vision. Lord, we have some warfare to do in this prayer time. Gather your people now to pray. Enlarge their hearts. Help them to realize that this world as we presently know it, with its futility and its bondage to decay and its sin, is passing away in that sense. And that something wonderfully, gloriously new is emerging. Oh, Lord God, soon, soon and very soon, I pray that you would do it. And all the people said, Amen.